Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Sonia Feldhoff, and I'm very pleased to be hosting uh, the session this afternoon. Uh, but I am here uh, as part of the Pla Planet Talk session to introduce you to some fairly impressive guests who are very well versed on the subject we're talking about today. Now, if you mention the uh, phrase climate change, uh, I think most of us can often almost hear the collective sigh. A big problem in an even bigger world, and the clock, unfortunately, is ticking too fast. Climate change requires a major solution, and you might feel overwhelmed about what your role in that might be, or whether any role you can play would even be effective in the long run. I guess this afternoon, believe that each of us does have a role, and just because you can't do everything, doesn't mean you shouldn't do something. Let me introduce them to you. Uh, Karen O'Brien is a professor of human geography at Norway's University of Oslo. She is also um, a co-founder of SeaChange.no. Karen, thank you. John D. Next to me here is the co-founder of Planet Ark, National Tree Day, Do Something, and One Tree Per Child. He currently hosts the weekly Sky News Smart Money Business Sustainability TV program. Uh, Evan Erin Rhodes in the middle attempts to live a plastic-free, zero-waste life, documented through the zero-waste blog The Rogue Ginger, which you may be familiar with. And Vanera Vanessa Morris uh, on the end is the co-founder of Be an Unfucker, a mo movement dedicated to rethinking the way we talk about being green. Could you please welcome them all uh, to the Planet Talks this afternoon? Well, Karen, if we can start with you, if, if that's okay. Some of your research uh, focuses on the relationship between the individual and the collective. Now, there's often a sense that one person's efforts will make either little or no difference to a problem the scale of climate change. What does the research tell us? Well, a lot of the research on climate change is really looking at behavioral change. How do we change your behavior or your behavior and, um, and recognizing that Climate change is a systemic problem. We need to change energy systems, agricultural systems, transport systems, and everything. So um, the re research is really kind of saying, how do we get people to change, lower their carbon footprints? And what I'm interested in is the relationship between what individuals do and what others do. How are people influencing the collective? And we can explain that to people through various means of storytelling and narratives and uh, meaning making, but really the best way to get that across and what we're looking at is experiments with change. Getting people to engage not with the climate part, but with the change part. And to see that you know, in doing a little experiment, and it doesn't necessarily have to be about carbon footprints or anything, it can be about anything, but you start to see the patterns and you start to see how you relate to larger systems and social norms and your own assumptions and beliefs about change. And eventually then you start to realize that you actually do influence other people. And so looking at research on how do we empower people, not as the problems with climate change, but as the solutions to climate change, I think is really exciting because the more and more people that get engaged um, that aren't necessarily interested in sustainability from the start or, or with um, climate change and things, but who are you know, they, they have ideas about the future that they want, and change is something that, you know, can be fun, and it can be, you know, it's a, definitely you learn something from it. Vanessa, you're trying to push through that resistance to change through being an unfucker. Uh, the movement is trying to make us uh, rethink the way we talk about being green. What's, the, what's wrong with the way we're currently talking about it? Well, I think there's, there's too many polar ba bears floating on icebergs and pictures of arid land, and I just, I just don't think that everybody engages with that. And so what we're trying to do with Be An Unfucker is just bring it back to the mainstream and bring it back to everyday life. And I think that's one of those things, like climate change feels like it's such a big, it's such a big problem and it's so hard to know where to start. And so what we wanted to do is just go, okay, let's not think about the big picture and let's take it to like the small on a really sort of macro level what we can do um and the thing is that everyone is empowered to do something um and it's just what you can do in your own life and within your own means and to start by taking one small step and change one thing in your life and then you can go it goes on and it has a knock-on effect and you can start changing more things and another thing and another thing and before you know it like you've you've totally changed some bad habits 
Um, John, you've been talking about doing something for decades now, really, in so many ways. Um, there's the individual level, but you're now moving into the individual business level almost. Um, for many of us, we think that is going to be even slower to change. Is that what you're finding? I, the good news there is I actually see that businesses are now bringing about really substantial change. And what's exciting is a lot of the change that's taking place in business on a global level is actually better for the bottom line. So in the past, we used to think that to get businesses on board, you had to say, well, this is what your customers want. This is about thinking about the children, thinking about the future. But if you now look at a lot of the changes that are happening in the business world, it's actually better because you're doing more with less, you're being more efficient with energy use, you're being more efficient with the materials that you use, and with innovation and technology that takes place now, we're now seeing solar-powered farms here in, uh, in South Australia, the Sundrop Farms. You know, you're now looking at, I'm filming someone this week at Sydney Airport, where Sydney Airport are now using electric buses. And the great news about that is the electric buses aren't just cleaner because they don't have pollution, they're not just quieter than diesel buses, but they're actually cheaper to run. So you're looking at a thirty dollars to $35,000 a year less running costs for electric buses than you do see for diesel buses. So the good news here is that the businesses who are not bringing about this change are actually acting in a way that's actually bad for the bottom line. And I, I wrote a book called Energy Cut. There was 350 pages all about how to reduce energy use in your business. And I didn't need once to use the term climate, carbon, or emissions in the entire book because every argument was based on the fact Doing these things was actually better for the business bottom line. And I think that's the real change we're now seeing. The innovation has happened, the technology is there, all the solutions we need to create a more sustainable future are already in place and are being rolled out. The key thing we now need to see is that businesses actually now adopt what has been proven by other businesses right across the board. We'll see improvements in bottom lines, we'll see improvements in jobs, and we'll see a massive improvement in environmental efficiency. Yeah, so it's, it, it, if anyone is tempted to call it airy-fairy, it's not. The bottom line talks, doesn't it, uh, in business? There are now so many examples of businesses that are, are saving money and making more money, not just, just because they're becoming more efficient, but we're also identifying new opportunities. So this uh, electric bus company that I'm interviewing this week for Sky News, they actually have identified this as a way of being a better mode of business for their company, going for the cleaner, more efficient, uh, emissions-free alternative is actually opening up new opportunities for that company. And if you're a diesel bus manufacturer right now, your days are absolutely numbered unless you go to electric buses because electric buses are cheaper, they're cleaner, and for if you look at how many cities around the world now are struggling with air pollution, one of the simplest solutions is to get rid of diesel buses. They're filthy, they're noisy, and replace them with electric buses. They can still do hundreds of kilometers now on a single charge, which we couldn't do in the past. You don't have emissions, and they're quieter and more comfortable for passengers. So there's a win-win right across the board. Erin, mm. you've made a big commitment to uh, changing the way you do things, and I imagine that's taken time. But if we talk from the business point of view about the bottom line, how did you find those changes impacted from a financial point of view at home? Was it just an environmental benefit or did you actually save money? I saved a lot of money and it actually was one of the driving forces once I got going with these changes to want to keep going. Um, as John said, you know, there's efficiencies. My life now feels more efficient because it's less cluttered. Um, I'm saving a lot more time. I feel like life is more simple. It's not as complicated as it used to be um, just by, I guess, streamlining my life and looking at ways that I can be more sustainable. It's had a huge knock-on effect everywhere. I'm also eating better as well um, and I lost weight and my skin cleared up and it's just, um, yeah, just had so many improvements in my life and overall I feel happier as well. So that's been probably the biggest... Um, mm. The a total all-round improvement. Yeah. yeah. Karen, you'd be aware of the arguments. They come out all the time about it's all very well for one person to do something, but the countries around the world that are huge, like China, the captains of industry who are churning out um, whatever they produce, we will never be able to make a difference against what they are doing in the world. How true do you find that statement? 
I think that's a very disempowering statement, and it, I think it makes a lot of people just go, oh, I don't matter. And, um, and yet we do have a big ship to turn, you know, to bend those curves in the time period we have is going to call for a lot. And um, what I think people often forget is that social change is not this linear process that happens really slowly, that through norms, through rules and regulations, through seeing other people, through everyone taking the lead in whatever their sphere of influence, we start to see that change can happen much faster um, than it does. But you can't ignore politics, you can't ignore power, you can't ignore um, these larger systems. And I think to engage people, not just who are interested in the environment, but everybody, um, to be part of that. And I know that many businesses are, you know, very concerned about sustainability at one level, but they also have trouble getting their employees um, into the changes or their boards and things. So how do we really start to change the message about um, these changes and put people at the forefront rather than as the, um, you know, like, like to be very disempowered by those stories. And, and then when we start to see that, um, yeah, China is changing fast as, um, you know, technologies change, but people are starting to adapt to the very idea that we are actually influencing the future and we're responsible for that future. So, so w do you say it's a political problem or a government problem or a social problem? Um, I call it an adaptive problem because it's, um, you know, it's both, it's all, you know, it's very personal because it's about what our beliefs, our values, our worldviews, how we engage with the world, what we think we can do in that world, who should lead and everything. But it is also political because it's what we take to be given in by our politicians and things. Do we need, um, you know, transport, you know, auto transport for economic growth in a city and, and things. So there's stories that we are told and I think that the personal and the political actually have really big implications for the practical. And the practical is really what we want to change, you know, CO2 emissions and biodiversity loss, um, et cetera. I think all of you on one level, but particularly Karen and John, you see and have these discussions with government and policymakers and business leaders to try to get that message across. Do you see individual change and consciousness about this issue making an impact on those levels? I think we're seeing that the politicians are dreadfully out of touch with the changes that are taking place. Probably um, not the only area, I'm, yeah. I'm guessing some but people suggest. But, but in a way where, you know, what's really exciting everyone is that uh, on my program, every week I've got to come up with six new stories about what businesses are doing to create a better future in a way that actually enhances their bottom line. And you just have to look at, you know, the, the power cuts you've been having in South Australia is a ridiculous situation because of politicians not acting in time and there's been so many warnings about it. So it's been very exciting that two business leaders, Mike from Atlassian and Elon Musk from Tesla, are having to tweet each other the solution that we know would actually stop the power cuts here in South Australia. It's grid batteries. And grid batteries can soak up all of that renewable power when it's not being used and unleash it instantly at peak time when we are at most at risk of, of having blackouts. So we know these solutions are in place. And what's exciting now is we've seen in California, SDG&E, which is a utility over there, has just rolled out the world's biggest grid battery. So we now know that this technology has reached mainstream. It's going out there and it's already being used to make that difference. And I think the politicians have been slow to act, but the good news is we know from yesterday that you know, the, it's been announced that we, you know, the discussions are on with Musk, but at the end of the day, there are now a number of grid battery companies that have got this solution in place, so that solution is there. But there are many other solutions that are now coming online, like electric cars that now are getting cheaper and cheaper. The, the, the range of those electric cars are getting better. We're seeing the electric buses have now gone absolutely prime time. So the solutions that will solve a lot of the environmental problems we have are now coming online at the right price. And the great news is they're getting cheaper than the old ways of doing things. So we know with solar, for example, we're seeing in Chile now, there's just been a new deal for solar power, which is less than three cents a kilowatt. There is absolutely, no matter what you're told by politicians, clean coal or coal in general, any new coal plant will not get anywhere near as cheap as renewable power alternatives. And once you add in the battery grid that we, we're having now, like for example, the Powerwall 2 has just been launched by Tesla, and it's, uh, it's 14 kilowatts of batteries with an inverter. It's the same price as what you had to pay for a seven kilowatt battery a year ago. So in the, in the course of a year, it's effectively halved in price with solar batteries. So the technology is coming online, it's mainstream, and it's getting dramatically cheaper.
Karen, are you seeing that sort of change on a worldwide basis too, where the individual demand for these things, uh, the people who have changed, is having an impact on that level? Well, I'm interested in, you know, changes in mindsets and things. And what I see is that the consciousness is changing dramatically, especially among young people, you know, who are connecting the dots in different ways and seeing that, you know, like, yeah, the future, this is our future. Um, and I kind of use young loosely because I think it's people who have um, flexible mindsets. And you can be any age and be, you know, have that flexible idea of like, ah, we're living in a different future, seeing the writing on the wall. So, um, you know, the transformation is happening, but it's often off the radar from the mainstream news and media and things, and we often hear the negative stories and that we can't change, and I think we have really great examples of, um, you know, like initiatives that are really reaching out to um, a different generation of thinkers that really want a different future. Erin, you were talking about the fact that you made all these changes at home, but now you're going wider and you want people to feel the... Um, the power to be able to see change in the businesses, the organisations that they deal with. How? I guess when I started my journey, I didn't understand or comprehend my power as a consumer and a member of the community. I never thought that I could go into my local cafe and have a conversation with them about the plastic straws they have and say, hey, have you thought about maybe switching to paper or moving them under the counter? Because previously, I guess, we all feel that if we speak up, we're being a pain in the butt or we're creating issues for them. But I think we've got to realise that if we do learn to speak up, we're coming from a place of kindness. And people do want to listen to these changes. They're actually quite open to them. You know, when I explained to this business that they would save money as well and they would probably bring more customers in because people want to shop at or spend their money with people who look after the environment too. So it's a win-win. And I really do think we need to, I guess, go and approach those companies. Don't be afraid to write letters at all because um, those letters make it to boardroom meetings. They make it to party room meetings as well. So we should never, ever, ever be afraid about, I guess, using our voice and asking for that change because people are wanting to listen. The time's kind of now, I guess, to start those conversations. Well, while we're on that, though, how difficult or easy, How what sort of experience did you have making the change from not being environmental at all to moving into this life that you have of trying to create zero waste? I mean, that sounds like a very ambitious target. It was. <laughs> And um, I set myself a challenge with Plastic Free July. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of that. And um, basically, it was a month-long challenge where I just started reducing the amount of plastic I was using, like plastic bags, plastic straws. And it just kind of went from there. And I was able to, I guess, learn about the impacts of it all. And it was a gradual, gradual step. Like, I've been doing this for five years now. And it's taken me a long time to make those changes, but as um, Be and Unfucker kind of do, is that they just encourage you as well to make small changes because they lead to another change and another change and another change. You just can't do it all in one sweep. Vanessa, I'd love you to yeah. join yeah. in on this because being overwhelmed about all that we should do or could do can be paralysing. Oh, it can be, it, yeah, completely. There's, there was someone who wrote in to us um, saying that she was at the supermarket and she forgot to bring her own bags and she was paralysed at the checkout because she didn't... She wanted to drive home to pick up her bags but then she didn't want to use her car and <laughs> so she was standing there having this moral dilemma at the checkout and I think just she ended up deciding to um, to use the bags. But that's the thing. It's, it's, it's about not getting... Uh, I think not getting too caught up in, in everything because then you do nothing. And so I think uh, there's a couple of points in the fact that, um, you know, it's it's about choosing one the one thing that you can do and then going, okay, this is, this is okay for me, I can do this, I, I'll keep going. Um, but also the fact that you don't have to be perfect and, you know, sometimes it might not work out and you can't... I don't know, you try doing Plastic Free July and unfortunately you slip and fail, but that's okay and it doesn't mean you should be discouraged and it doesn't mean you should stop trying. Um, it's just about starting again and trying something else and 
And it's, it's not an all or nothing thing, it's an incremental thing. Karen, maybe you'd like to add something about change. I mean, are we, are we very judgmental uh, when it comes to this sort of thing? Is that part of the resistance to change, do you think? Well, I think the environmental movement comes with a you should change and you yes. must change should and it's a really word good to be yeah. green and, um, you know, change your behaviour. And anytime, if, you know, like when someone tries to change someone else, it usually backfires and you just go like, oh, no, you know, because we don't want to be changed. We want to be able to choose the changes and be, um, you know, like kind of have that authority. So what we've been doing, uh, you know, stepping outside of my research hat, we've, um, through Sea Change, we've been um, asking people to do a 30-day challenge similar to um, what you, but putting people in groups of like 15 and giving them kind of reflection questions and little um, information on, you know, environmental impacts on that. And what we see is that, the, you know, sharing the stories becomes so important because when you see that somebody else has, you know, struggled at the grocery store and what they did if they bought a box and put it on their head or whatever, and that everybody has the, the same kind of, no matter what you're doing, you kind of run into the same things of sometimes the logistics don't work out, sometimes you're in an uncomfortable social situation and you have to really stand up for yourself, and sometimes, you know, there are larger systems in place, and, and we don't all have errands going around running and, you know, saying, you know, to the stores and things, and or... Um, John's going and, you know, talking to the businesses, but every single person starts to realize that somebody, you know, you start to realize you're picking up on the changes that others are doing almost unconsciously. So I will probably go home and be thinking about my plastic that, you know, like well, my waste because I've had a conversation with Aaron. And um, so, so those kind of things like, become really important and we start to realize that we actually are influencing others and that is how social change comes about. I think one of the key things there is, we, you know, we're hearing about how we need to make changes to our behaviour. And one of the issues I came across was, was phosphates in laundry detergents. And we used to see these, you know, products out in supermarkets that would say phosphate-free. But if you actually looked at the market share, it was really minute of, of the companies who were doing their own thing and making sure we didn't have phosphates in laundry detergents because not enough people were willing to make that shift to the alternative that was actually better for the environment. So one of the things I did, I went and talked to every supermarket, went and talked to all the companies that were still using phosphate in laundry detergents, and one by one I, I basically sat down with them and managed to get them to commit to getting rid of phosphates in laundry detergents. So if you go to Coles or Woolworths or IGA or Aldi now, you'll see everyone is phosphate free. We managed to get rid of laundry detergents that had phosphate in. What was exciting about that is that's 1.9 billion washes a year just in Australia that we have now made phosphate-free as a result of that. Now, what's really important about that is not a single one of you have had to change your behaviour to bring about that change because what it is, it's about getting the companies to make all products green, not just a niche. We need to look at everything we buy and how can we make those products way more sustainable than they are now. How can we get companies to do more with less? And Unilever are doing this right now, where they're looking to halve their environmental impact. They want to double their sales without actually increasing their environmental impact. And this e these are the kind of changes we need, because the reality is the people in this room right now, you're the committed ones. You're the people who are really willing to make change in your day-to-day -day lives. But the average person out there who's struggling with the mortgage, they're struggling with the rent, struggling to keep a job, struggling to keep on top of things, they've got other priorities they're trying to deal with. So we've got to make it really easy for them. And I think the way to do that is to get the buyers at companies like Coles and Woolies and IGA and Aldi, if those buyers insist on certain environmental criteria for the products that we sell, we will get a lot further, a lot quicker in reducing environmental Can impact. Can I ask you then, you've had those discussions, you said you went in and spoke to them, you made it sound like a relatively easy process. What, what changed their behaviour? What bent their ear to make them accept that? Because surely we should be doing more of that. Well, basically what it came down to was I actually looked at what was the alternative to phosphates and how much did it cost? And what I was able to show all those companies was two things. Firstly, the alternatives to phosphate wouldn't cost them more, so it wouldn't hit their bottom line as a company, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't mean that they would have to increase the prices of the product for the consumer. The, the, at the end of the day, I could show that there was enough evidence in America, which had already gone phosphate-free. All of these companies had phosphate-free products in the States where they'd been phosphate-free for many years. So that one was qu actually quite easy to get across the line. The key problem we have in Australia is inertia. We have inertia at the corporate level, we have inertia at the public level, but we also have political inertia. 
because the problem is a lot of the environment ministers we have in Australia, it's a job that's a step, stepping stone to a, to a career that is a bit higher up the tree. And so environmental ministers don't really have enough clout in Australia. And we tend to go for a more voluntary approach to things. And voluntary approach tends to be what's the wishy-washy kind of light green version of where we actually need to be. Because a lot of the environment ministers don't have a lot of knowledge about what the solutions are. And I think the politicians, the public have no idea how fast the actual change is coming. So there's a lot of solutions out there. And what we need to become more aware of we need to become more aware of the solutions and demand that those get put in place so that everybody has access to greener products, not just people who are prepared to pay, a, you know, pay an, an, an increased amount for a niche product. Yeah. Karen, is that true in Norway too or wider in the world in the experience that you've had? Well, I think that, you know, there's a really important role for, um, I mean, businesses are seeing opportunities now, but there is a role for regulations and for, um, you know, kind of the, the, the laws. We t there's a tendency, um, I mean, Norway has been kind of slow to get um, <laughs> ecological food into mainstream grocery stores, and it's, it's kind of a late starter. It's a very leading um, country in terms of electric vehicles and, you know, kind of the electric car capital of the world, and people are starting to, you know, you start to see that, having an electric car then makes people start to think about their food and their plastic and their waste and it, it's again it's like these kind of knock-on effects and things but but what I my concern is that when we kind of put our emphasis on just nudging people and having people to do things as like, automatically we, we don't connect with their deeper values and we run the risk that when things go turn hard if the economy turns bad they they, they switch over to you know go back to um, driving big cars eating meat doing things that were kind of easier before so trying to actually initiate you know like much deeper changes i think happens a lot through experientially engaging with change um one step at a time so so that key effort is getting involved making the changes yourself and seeing your own power and seeing that your own right. power that you are the system you can influence those regulations you can go into stores when i was in you know elementary school we had to go and read the boxes of laundry detergent and and things and um and you know people were then are, every time a regulation changes it's when a social norm changes when enough people get together and say wait a minute why is this happening this way and that is you know when you start to make that connection between individuals and, and, and the political and, mm -hmm. and kind of open up our own political agency, then um, that's very powerful. Which I think is great, but I think John raises a really interesting point and that inertia and many of us are innately lazy, aren't we? Um, and um, Vanessa, I think your organisation probably helps us by doing baby steps as such. Um, how important is making it easy for us because we're either too busy or too lazy to do the right thing. Yeah, I think... Because I think essentially most of us want to do the right thing. Yeah, I yeah, I don't think anyone wants to be an eco-arsehole. Like, you know, I think we all want to do something good. But it, it is about making it easy. And uh, I think also understanding that... Like, I, I think when you, you try and make a change and then if, if someone uh, sees you fail, they'll immediately start pointing the finger at you and then you feel bad and then so you stop it. And so I think it's about not judging people as well and just uh, focusing on yourself rather than focusing on what other people are doing and being a, a busybody and, you know, mm. just immediately jumping and going, aha, I saw you, you've got a plastic bag, you're a terrible person. Um, and so just, you know, being a bit more empathetic to other people and understanding that there are different shades of, of green. And as I was saying before, it's not like a... It's not an all-encompassing thing. You don't have to immediately change everything in your life straight away and commit to that forever. It's, it's about making incremental steps. Can I say, though, it's interesting because Ron Clark and I started the National Plastic Bag Campaign back in 2002. And what worked really well was people giving people bad looks at the, <laughs> the cash register like, you're using a plastic bag, you know, because we had the green bags finally came out. And for those few glorious years, everybody was using green bags. And what's exciting is that we made a commitment to phase out plastic bags. So South Australia, thank goodness, carried on with the pledge to get rid of the thin, lightweight plastic bags. And now we're finally getting there with the rest of the country. But it was interesting how the social mores of people being at the checkout not wanting to be seen with a plastic bag was because they were worried what people would think about them yeah. was really good. But now you look at Coles and Woolies, they're throwing plastic bags at us in other states apart from South Australia and other states that have got rid of the thin lightweight bags. But you can't also dismiss, I think, the value of people, of where the public is going. So if you get enough people to say, 
we now need to go in this direction, that social pressure is actually, can actually be a very positive thing, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of the reason why we started um, The Unfuckers was because um, my co-founder, Karish, who was getting more and more interested in the environment, and I found myself being really worried that she was judging me, thinking that I was a bad person, because admittedly, I used to bag bananas at the supermarket, like I just didn't think about it, it was just a habit, it was a really bad habit. Um, and then I was really worried that she would catch me and think I was a terrible person, so I stopped doing it. And then we realised there was something really powerful in the fact that um, the idea of positive peer pressure and the fact that it takes one person, you know, in a family or in a set of friends to start making changes in their life and then it has a knock-on effect because everyone wants to be liked by their friends and family and, and so it's, it's, it's a really nice thing. Karen, can, let's talk about um, the sea change challenge that you said, this, this monthly challenge. Are you seeing now some of the results of um, those, those challenges uh, in the individuals that you deal with? Well, we haven't done a follow-up study, but I've been doing it with students for um, a number of years, and, and that's where I got uh, in their reflection papers, that they were just so amazing of what, ha what 30 days could do um, to the way they think about themselves in relation to change. And one of them went from like not using plastic bottles, and then she said, well, you know, that wasn't that hard, and she changed her change to go like, okay, I'm going to be politically active on Facebook, and then she said, oh, only my parents are giving me likes, and so she joined an organization on campus and then was made the leader of the student divestment campaign for getting um, the university out of oil and things, and now she's, you know, uh, engaged, and, and you start to see, you know, how people who maybe did one little thing, like water a plant or something like that, then the next thing they do is, you know, they come to me in the studio, guess what, I bought an electric car, I never would have done that, and, and you know, I think that um, Aaron is a great example of taking that challenge and then realizing you can do more and more. And, um, and what we're really seeing, though, is that it, it changes the way people are talking about change with their friends. Because when you do just an experiment, it's, it's less threatening for others, and they get very curious. And they go, well, why should you not bag bananas in plastic? What does plastic do? Where does the waste go? And you can actually start to talk to them, and they might have some really good um, you know, questions. Oh, don't you miss hamburgers? Or why should we get, you know, is, is it better to eat ecological food that travels halfway around the world than just a local apple or, or things? And so the conversations that you really need to, um, to open up um, and we tend to, when we talk about, you know, like being green, just really point the finger and really approach it in a very moralistic way rather than in a, huh, what if, maybe, can I try this type of way. Do you, do you think it, there's a divisive line, though, in some of those judgments that come from, um, from having those discussions but then also pointing the finger as such? Can we do it better? Oh, I definitely think we can do it better. And I think, like, our Green Party is, um, you know, trying to get... Um, cars outside of the city and, and everything, but anytime one of them is seen going to the airport or seen taking a taxi to the meeting, they're front page in the media because, oh, you hypocrite. And, and I know that I have a larger carbon footprint than most people I know because I fly to climate change meetings and I can, you know, um, yeah, and, and that you, you just have to really start to shift that conversation about, you know, how do we actually create change that is bigger than us, but starting with one individual change? Because every person is responsible for, you know, some, you know, either themselves, but also households, communities. You know, we all have a sphere of influence where we can make that difference. Mm. John, if I can ask you, because here in Australia, I mean, we have a relatively small population uh, compared to other countries worldwide, and there is a tendency to think it doesn't matter what we do here in Australia, either as a country or as on an individual level, that it's really not going to have an impact. Glad you asked me that, because it's one of those areas where, if you look at Australia, there's 23 million of us. We're educated, we're far better looking than the rest of the world, <laughs> and <coughs> the great news is we're wealthy compared to a lot of other countries. <coughs> yes, anyway. Present company accepted, yeah, present of course. Present company accepted, yeah. <laughs> But what's interesting is, if you look back at, uh, how many, hands up, how many of you remember the, the ban on incandescent globes? Good. So it affected everybody, okay? So what was interesting about that, I remember going to, the, to Ian Campbell, who was then Environment Minister, and I said, well, why can't Australia lead the world on incandescent globes? Let's get rid of them over a three-year phase that period. I managed to get the, the managing director of Philips was very supportive, and he sent a letter saying, we'll get rid of incandescent globes if everyone else does the same. So that way, and they were, I think, about a quarter of the market at that time. So we knew we could get business support for the idea. So Australia, to John Howard's credit, actually, Howard put that through the cabinet and made it happen. What was exciting about that was Australia was the first developed country in the world 
to get rid of incandescent globes. And then they were replaced by CFLs. We're now replacing them with LED, which are even better environmentally and, uh, and, and uh, from an energy efficiency standpoint. But here's the thing. We did it first. Did you notice how much the rest of the world then immediately copied it because Australia had done it? It suddenly gave permission for everyone else that well, if Australia's done it, the wheels haven't fallen off their economy, they're saving money. What most people don't realize is how much money that simple initiative actually saved. It has saved Australian households in the last 10 years over $5.5 billion. That's how much we've saved from taking that environmental move. And a lot of people have no idea that when we make these kind of changes, it's not just changing the way we light our houses and light our businesses, it can actually save an enormous amount of money. And that's one of the things that we need to do as Australia. We need to lead the world. We need to start, need to start not, we need to look at it so that Having just 23 million people is not, why should we move first? That is our obligation to move first, because we have the ability to set an example that, is, that the rest of the world can follow. And if we can't do it, why should we expect the rest of the world to, to not to follow? I think that's really important. Uh, yes, indeed. Just while we're talking about those examples, tell us about the example of Coles Bay, because here in South Australia, we're very, I think most of us are very proud of our plastic bag uh, initiative and our record on that in the last few years. But Coles Bay is where it started. Yeah, it was interesting. I got a phone call from the baker in Coles Bay, Ben Carney, who's now a very good friend of mine. And he said, I own the, the, the bakery here in Coles Bay, and, and I'd like to reduce the amount of plastic bags that we're using for, for the bakery. And so I said, well, how many shops do you have? in Coles Bay. And he said, well, you know, I think there's about 10 of them. And I said, well, do you know them? And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm actually the, I'm in charge of the local chamber of commerce. So I said, well, why don't, you, why don't you just ban them and become the first town to get rid of plastic bags? And so over the period of months, we actually managed to make Coles Bay the very first town in Australia to ban plastic bags. And what was exciting is that then led to what we saw in South Australia, the ban here. We've now got the ban on thin, lightweight bags in other states and territories, and I think eventually that will go national. But the great thing was there was a town called Mowbray in the United Kingdom that just went, well, if Coles Bay has done it, they gave us a call. We gave them all the, the examples of what we'd done with this small little village, and then Mowbray then decided to ban plastic bags there, and that then led to the Prime Minister of England realising, well, this is a good idea, and now England has taken major steps on reducing plastic bag usage, and it began in a small village here in Australia with Coles Bay. So that's the kind of change that we need to see happening. You should never think that whatever change you make doesn't have an impact, as, as we heard from our colleagues here. When you make a change, you impact those around you, your family, your friends, and, and other people in your lives. But if we make these kind of changes and we stick with them, we can create the kind of change that we want to see. It can be very positive, and the great thing now about sustainability is, often we're now finding, whether it's electric cars or solar batteries or all these other changes that are happening, they're actually better for the bottom line. They save us money in our households, they save money in businesses, and what finally is happening for all of us, which is great news, is the financial argument is finally on our side. All the changes that we want to see are actually better for the economy. Politicians in many places haven't caught up with that yet. I have to say, with if you look at South Australia, it's fantastic in South Australia how much this state is leading on renewables. You know, we're told that that's a bad thing. It is not. It's a really, really good thing. And we need to see more of that. And I think, you know, South Australia is consistently, whether it's container deposits, whether it's plastic bags, whether it's renewable energy, what we often see is South Australia leads the way, and it takes a while for everyone else to catch up. But when they do, they realise that what happens here is often far better. Erin, does that give you confidence? I mean, you're doing it in your household. I know that you're now embarking further within your community. But does that give you confidence about how far you can go down the, this path? Yeah, definitely. Like, um, I'm now more involved in my community efforts to try and make some of these changes. So, um, I'm from Melbourne, where we don't have a ban on plastic bags yet, sadly, or a cash-free container scheme. But I am working with local community groups and getting out there, and there is a huge demand for it. Like, we are seeing so many more towns pop up in Victoria coming together and um, saying, right, we're going to go plastic bag free here. So, yeah, I do feel hopeful, and you do see it more and more um, also in WA as well, the small towns getting together and making changes, and just goes to show that, you know, a small group of people can create such a huge change. Like, it's amazing that it went from Coles Bay to South Australia, to this small little village in England, then to all of England. Like, that's just amazing. So it just goes to show that 
us as individuals have an amazing chance to create huge ripples just everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Karen, can I ask you, when you see that there's different change that happens in some parts, why does, is there a, does the research suggest there is a greater adapta adaptability um, or sense of change in certain cultures or certain communities? Do we know what that is and can we tap into that? Well, we're trying to look at adaptive capacities because we certainly know that we have to adapt to changes, you know, in the coming decades um, from climate change impacts. Um, but what we're seeing also is that there's a lot of people who are making that connection of like with, you know, a lot of people out there are not making a difference be, um, between a distinction between adaptation and mitigation. That's very much a policy um, language. A lot of people are just engaging with change. And those people who, you know, we're looking at kind of the role of creativity, of empowerment, of collaboration, and, and kind of the kind of factors that actually make people be able to engage in collective change. And that gives them a stronger capacity to adapt to not only to the impacts, but to this idea that we're changing the climate and that they can actually have that impact on the future. Have um, you been able to put your finger on what those those elements are yet? I think it really comes through actually feeling like they matter and feeling that um, you know that that they're that you know it comes from within being able to kind of split between the top down they're going to tell us and they're going to make you know make the rules for us or then to the bottom up to say that we are actually influencing those very systems and those very structures and research shows that it, it really is only about 10% that needs to change you know to have a really strong belief to actually flip that system and and I think the most adaptive communities are the ones that can can kind of engage with uncertainty to be able to um, you know respond flexibly and to be able to challenge um, you know the way things have always been to recognize that wow you know we actually we actually can change that future um, I, we're going to in a few minutes uh, hand it over to you and uh, if you do have a question perhaps start thinking about that and I'll ask you to put your hands up and there will be several mics coming around to perhaps um, throw the questions to our guests on the stage here but if I could uh, perhaps focus on um, everyone, uh, just about a few ways that we can make differences. I might start with you, Erin, because you've made such commitment to this. Um, some of the ways, the practical ways, you think we can make a difference? Well, I'm going to say it's the single-use plastic items, I guess, that we use every day that um, have been thrust into our life um, as part of this assumed convenience that we need. And they're the plastic bags, the plastic straws, the plastic water bottles, the plastic takeaway. Uh, there's so many other alternatives that have been around for so long. Um, it's just that we've forgotten how to use them, that's all. All these little bits of plastic that we use, they've only been around, you know, 50, 60 years. Um, so we just need to, I guess, relearn some old habits that our great-grandparents used to use, and that was taking your own bag, taking your own water bottle. You don't need straws, really, for anything, I don't think. Um, you know, take your own container when you go shopping at the deli as well. Um, and you'll find so many more improvements in your life. You'll be supporting your local community, supporting your local farmers. Um, you'll see a huge reduction in plastic in your home. And one of my top tips is to start composting as well. That will reduce what you send to landfill dramatically. Well, I think one of the, the key things I think everyone should look at, not just people here but elsewhere, is where can we save money? And that's the, the key thing. So if you think in terms of... Food waste, you know, we're, we're, put, we're throwing so much good quality food into landfill. If you look at the research being done in New South Wales and Victoria, it looks like we're spending about $2,000 a year on edible food that we throw away that we could actually use. So we're wasting anything from 8 to $16 billion a year just on food that we throw away. So that has a very big in environmental impact. We also need to think about, do we need to buy stuff? We're so often we're buying stuff that we actually don't need. And one of the great things to do is, is you know, I run National Op Shop Week. Let's support those charity op shops because so much stuff there is really good quality. You help good causes like the Salvos and Vidis and Red Cross, but at the same time, you can get a good bargain at the same time. But I think you also need to think about energy. The one exciting thing about South Australia with its use of renewable energy is also how many people in this state are actually using solar. You know, there's a huge number of people around Australia that have now put solar on the rooftops, they've put solar on businesses, and saving a fortune in the process. So I think if any people haven't got solar yet, we need to get mo that more out there. We also need to think about solar batteries, as I said, with Tesla. Their power wall is effectively halved in price in the last year. So 
we need to start thinking about how can we become more energy efficient? Can we make sure all of us have LED lighting? Can we make sure the places where we work have made that, have put in LED lighting as opposed to the other lighting they have? Because that will definitely save money. It reduces maintenance costs. But if we can all make that switch to being more energy efficient, using more renewables, using things like solar batteries, especially now that they're getting cheaper and cheaper, all of us will reduce our bills, we'll have more money, but by doing more with less, we'll also mean that we're, we're saving money, but we're re significantly reducing our environmental impact at the same time. Vanessa? Um, I was going to say, for everyone to understand like the power of purchase and the power of their wallet, and supporting better business and supporting um, you know, people who are doing really great things and helping them lift up to the forefront of, of like, people's minds. Um, you know, so whether that's uh, you know, choosing a different provider for your gas and electricity to uh, choosing, um, I don't know, a different toilet paper supplier or that's you know, trying to do better, better business. Um, there's, there's loads of things that we can do with our, with our money. Like we have to, you know, we have to buy our electricity, we have to buy groceries. So it's thinking about those things and what we can do as individuals to, to support the people who are trying to do a good thing. Yeah. Karen, I know, um, um, sure you've I'm sure you've got your own ideas, but I'm just wondering about this idea that we have to make a permanent change. Is a month's change enough to start with? Well, they say that 30 days makes a habit, and I think that that starts to get under your skin, and, um, and I think it's, um, it is enough, and a lot of people, after the 30 days, they go back to the way they were, and say, oh, it's done, I can eat meat again, or this, but you suddenly start to realize, like, oh, but actually, it was actually good to eat, um, you know, alternatives, or I can, you, you, it gets, you start to realize that there are these other benefits, and so, as um, Aaron mentioned, it is a gradual process, but you start to almost become like the change junkie, you know, like, wow, what else can I change and everything. And I think that um, what's really the fun part is to actually see those ripple effects, though, and see how we are entangled with other people, with systems, that we are the system. And so I would encourage everybody to, um, you know, take a 30-day challenge, go to, you know, the websites and, and things. We have a Sea Challenge um, ebook that you can download that has some of the reflection questions and do it with a group of friends and everyone choose your own change and then just see that, like, see how much you actually influence people. Now, I'm happy to keep asking questions, but if we have any from the audience, please stick your hand up now. Don't be shy. We've got one down here. I'll start down this one here. Yep. And I think there's, if a microphone can head up the back, uh, we'll go with that one next. Yes. Is this on? Uh, not so much a question as a thank you for having jars and glasses on the table, not plastic bottles. I just want to acknowledge that... Bought our own anyway. <laughs> we changed that at the start, I'm glad to say, when we saw them. I also have done the 30-day uh, single-use plastics challenge for the last few years, and I belong to a few groups like the Buy Nothing group, very local. You can give away your half-used deodorant, somebody will take it, maybe, and all sorts of things, and they also do swaps and such like. Great initiative. Fantastic. Let's head up the back. Uh, hi, I'm, um, I'm a volunteer for Beyond Zero Emissions, and uh, this organisation does some great research, and on John's point that Australia could be a world leader, they've actually written a fantastic report on Australia having the capacity to become a renewable energy superpower. And I encourage everyone to go to our website, bze.org.au, and check out the research. Because if you can't make the change yourself, maybe donate to someone who can. <laughs> you know? And um, anyway, I, I'd really encourage you to check out their research. It's very good. Thank you very much for your comment. Hi, my name is Anne. And I was wanting to um, mention that while we're talking about Tesla in the area of batteries, we should also talk about local industries that are involved with batteries, like Redback in Queensland, 1414 right here in Adelaide. Um, we've got lots of companies that are innovating with battery technology, and they should be the ones that also get exposure along with the multinationals. So that's one point. And the other is that going on, I mean, to go ahead with the topic of today, do something, 
all of us are really frustrated with the lack of policy on climate change because we're dependent on politicians making right decisions. But here's something that every one of us can do if we choose to and if we feel empowered enough to, and that's the area of agriculture and our food choices. I'm not sure if everyone's aware of animal agriculture and the impact on climate change, but animal agriculture actually um, has a bigger impact on climate change than the entire transport sector. So it is a huge impact on climate change. And a simple consideration like choosing what food you choose to consume can have a direct impact on climate change. And that's something that each and every one of us can make a positive difference if we want to. So that's something that I think we really need to publicize more and in, inform people about more. Thank you. Thanks, Anne. Uh, look, I think Just one of the in relation to the, the first part of that question. Look, I think at the end of the day, we need to try and support as much local innovation as we possibly can, especially businesses that can then take that and then you know, not just use it in Australia, but hopefully export that knowledge overseas. But the simple fact is this, you had Mike from Atlassian, who's the co-founder of Atlassian, and Elon Musk you know, at, at Tesla, yeah. tweeting at the end of last week about the solutions to South Australia's blackouts, suddenly got real political action and got real, got, it was the front page of the Fin Review yesterday where people are thinking, okay, maybe this is the solution. So sometimes it needs a big multinational player like a Tesla that's got serious money behind them to kickstart it, but then hopefully the local Australian uh, variations on that battery technology will also be able to take advantage of it. The market is big enough for, for all players, I think. Um, yeah, my, my question is, uh, you're just talking about multi big, huge companies. Um, I'm f quite aware what you're talking about, and, and we live in a village that works hard with this. How do you deal, how are you working while we're fighting off big companies like an Indian company that wants to come here and makes, create, uh, get call, calls and, and just push itself through and we can't stop them? I think you've got to look at the financial argument. If you look at the Adani coal mine yeah. uh, proposal, it's absolutely ridiculous. It doesn't stack up in any way, shape or form from an economic standpoint. It doesn't stack up on the job side. It doesn't stack up from a marketing point of view. I mean, the price of coal right now means that that project is totally unviable from day one. So the concept that the Australian government would put a, would put a billion dollar loan into such a dodgy scheme is frankly ridiculous. So we, we need to think about what is the bottom line benefit of all the choices that we're going to make and start making the economic call on it. Are we subsidizing the damaging, polluting version of that industry or that product? Is the version that we're going to put in place that's more sustainable, you know, does it need maybe a leg up just to get it started? We're finding now more and more that the, the solutions that are there don't need a leg up. They just need a level playing field where we're not subsidizing the polluting alternatives. And if we do that, we'll see change happening at a far quicker rate. We've got a lot of questions, so we're going to head up the back now. We're going to try and get them done before we finish at four. So uh, change starts with the individual, but I wonder if the speakers would comment on how important it is for the individual to be prepared to move outside of their comfort zone on their perspectives. You know, how much of the change that we need is us reaching across divides and creating solutions with people we haven't agreed with in the past? Anyone? Yeah. Yeah? I would say that's really, you know, uh, I think a little experiment gets you to start to realize some of your assumptions and your and where your comfort zone is, and it gets you used to stepping outside. But um, but one of the things, and we're all kind of in the same value set here. How do you connect with people who don't share your values? People who are drawing the line somewhere else between us, us and others, and things and that. Um, but I think in some ways. These experiments are like a, a little Trojan horse because they start to get you on this, um, you know, this curve of actually reflecting on your own um, beliefs and assumptions. So I think it can be a lot more powerful and that the, the next step is. I've got to say, I'm not sure I agree with you. Um, I look at it, I've got this electric car. I love it because it's fast. I know I can drive really fast with it. I'm powering it up on weekends with solar power. I have this really, it improves the quality of my life. And I think what we've got to look at is not when you say, you know, things that take us outside of our comfort zone, the implication of that is that somehow we're losing something. But from what I've seen with all the solutions that are out there that we can now put in place, 
we can have a really good quality of life, but in a way that we substantially reduce the environmental impacts of that life. We've just got to look at ways in which we make our mainstream products way more sustainable than they are now. We know that is possible, and we've just got to change the way we do things. And it may be that we change certain things in the way we shop, we need to change the products that we buy, but at the end of the day, we can be doing a lot more with a lot less and reducing the amount of waste, reducing the energy use, redu re reducing the materials that we use. We've just got to get more clever and do more with less. That's the, the key thing we've got to do. Erin, you wanted to make a comment? Uh, yeah, so obviously um, living a zero waste life, I've definitely moved out of my comfort zone and had people challenge me on that and whatnot. And I find that as long as you stick to what your intentions are, it's going to be easier for you. Don't waste your energy worrying about what other people are thinking about you because then that's energy that you can spend continuing on your own journey. Um, if people are uncomfortable with the way that you've moved about in your own life and challenged things, let them worry about that. You've got your own life to kind of focus on and that's how it should be. I was just going to say quickly as well, it's also about finding common ground with people. You know, even if you don't agree with something, you can find something to talk about and then bring the conversation to, I don't know, e sustainability or climate change. You know, most people like coffee, so you could talk about bringing your own cup, for example, when you, when you go get a coffee instead of using disposable cups or, you know, people like having a beer, so it's talking about how climate change affects the crops and... And it's, so it's finding that common ground with someone who might not necessarily totally agree with you, but it's a way, it's a conversation starter to find something you have in common and then bringing the conversation to talking about change in a gentle way. We may have time for two more, I think, and the lady in front has the microphone. So um, my most successful person I shifted um, is my evangelical Christian medical specialist uncle in Queensland uh, on the issue of climate change. And the way I managed to do that is I asked him nicely to read the book Merchants of Doubt. So I guess it's an extension of what's just been said. I mean, have you had remarkable shifts in very unlikely people, either immediately or in the long term? I mean, my uncle didn't shift immediately, but something's happened in the last two weeks and I suddenly went, oh, he's actually fundamentally shifted. So, yeah, I'm just curious whether you've experienced that. Yeah, look, I, I have, because right, I've written two books. One was called Sustainable Growth, which was a business guidebook for small businesses, and the other one was a book called Energy Cut. And it's 350 pages of how businesses can save money by reducing energy use. And in the whole 350 pages, I didn't use the word climate, carbon or emission once because the financial bottom line argument was strong enough that we didn't need to do that. So I, what I found is that when you go out to businesses and you show them categorically that this other approach is far better for the bottom line, it will save them money, it makes their businesses more resilient, it makes jobs more resilient, it m means that you're more inclined to innovate as a company when you look at these solutions, you see very, very significant changes. So I'm very lucky, I've gone out and done hundreds of speeches around Australia and seen a huge number of business owners that are really willing to look at new ideas that will make their business stronger. Because the entrepreneurs and the small businesses in Australia are one area where we have not put enough focus. You know, but at the end of the day, they're people who, their livings and the livings of other many Australians rely on those small businesses being nimble and fleet-footed and open to change. And I think we need to put a lot more effort into small businesses and getting them to make them more efficient because it'll mean more jobs, more resilient small businesses, and will significantly reduce their environmental footprint. So I think that's an area where I have seen big change, and I think we need to do a lot more of it. We're not putting any resources properly into that area at a political level, and I think we need to see more of that. Anyone else? Yeah, I've, I've had family change. I've had friends change. I've had, you know, they might not have, you know, taken everything I do on board, but they'll email me and said, you know, I'm now shopping without plastic bags, or I'm now eating less meat, or... You know, so there are people, I'm not setting out to like change my whole family and friends, but yeah, people see what you're doing and they're interested and some will take changes on and some won't, but I find more people want to take them on, definitely. I'm sorry we don't have time for more questions. I know there are more hands up, but we are coming to the end of this. I guess just to wrap things up, um, would you say that you are optimistic that we are going to see these attitudes and change spread. Karen, can I start with you? 
um, yeah, I sometimes, when I look at the science, I get very like, oh my gosh, but when I look at what's happening around um, the world, I think I, I am optimistic, and I think it is absolutely possible for us to um, keep CO2 under two degrees um, globally, and but it's really going to be dependent on whether we can activate people and engage people with that change. Erin? Yes, I'm very optimistic. I'm very lucky I get to talk at schools and with school children, and I see a lot of engagement through my blog of people asking me just ways that they can reduce their waste. So people are very, very interested and want to live a life of kindness and with intention. So, yeah, I'm feeling definitely very optimistic for the future. Uh, I'm feeling optimistic as well. I think we're on the verge of a really big social change. I think it's like it's getting there. We're sort of walking up the hill, um, and I think, it, I think it will happen soon. John? The great news is there is so much change happening out there that a lot of you are not aware of. And I, I cover this every week on, on my, my show. I've got to find six new solutions and then cover it in a half-hour TV show. There is so much really good stuff happening where we're seeing very significant change coming in. And what I think we all need to do is look out for that change and look at how we can promote it with everybody that we know. Because I think once we make sure that everyone is aware of the solutions, they're aware of what is out there, the sooner we get that in place, the sooner we create a more sustainable society. Can you please thank Vanessa Morish, Erin Rhodes, Karen O'Brien and John Dee.